0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Uh, hello and welcome to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Bernard Keo, lecturer in Asian history at La Trobe University, and I'll be your host today. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples and pay respect to their elders past and present. The question of who is Chinese and how chinese this as an identity is constituted has been a recurring question, particularly in the context of the extensive Chinese diasporic community. In Contesting Chineseness, Nationality, Class, Gender, and New Chinese Migrants, published by Amsterdam University Press in 2022, Dr. Sylvia Ang investigates these questions in the context of Singapore, with a specific focus on unraveling why tensions exist between Singaporean-born Chinese and new Chinese migrants from the mainland, despite a shared sense of ethnicity, heritage, and culture. Combining traditional and digital ethnographic methods, she brings to life the intricate contest between Singaporean Chinese and new Chinese migrants and what it means to be Chinese. Contesting Chineseness is a valuable and timely contribution to the literature on the Chinese overseas, which demonstrates how an intersection of local and global developments have come to shape the experiences of contemporary Chinese migrants working and living in Singapore. Today, Sylvia joins me live to discuss her fantastic monograph. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time out to discuss your work. Um, So before we get into the nitty-gritty with your excellent monograph. Um, I thought we might start off by letting you introduce yourself to the audience. Could you maybe give us a bit of a background into your trajectory as a sociologist more broadly, and what motivated you to study migration identity as your specialization a bit more specifically?
2: Right. Um, thanks, Bernard, for having me, and thank you for um, doing this. It's not easy to be a host as well, I suppose. Uh, before I start, I'd like to say that I'm speaking from the unceded lands of the Woi and Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, I like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, it's an interesting question uh, on the sociologists. Um, well, although I identify as a sociologist of migration, ethnic relations, and social inequalities, my work is actually quite interdisciplinary. And uh, really, it spans across the fields of sociology, cultural studies, uh, geography, and Asian studies. I think um, I'm happy, however, to identify as a sociologist because my research uh, in the book, of course, is always concerned with how the individual interacts with the broader social world and how even as structures shape individuals, individuals also shape structures. Now, regarding migration um, and identity, right, uh, in your question, I think some of my motivations uh, do stem from my own background. Uh, you might be able to tell from the accent as a Singaporean, you can't run from it. Um, I grew up in a settler state, right? Really it's a settler state uh, where other than the native Malay um, ethnic group, uh, all others are immigrants or have ancestors who are uh, who were immigrants. And uh, Immigration didn't stop even after um, so many migrants have settled. Uh, One may know that Singapore is highly dependent on migrant workers, whether low wage or high wage. So there's a lot of diversity in Singapore, not just in terms of the settlers' uh, backgrounds, but also the migrant workers from various backgrounds who live amongst Singaporeans. So I think uh, it's, it's hard not to be interested in migration and identity when one has lived in Singapore.
1: Yeah, thank you for the fantastic kind of introduction to yourself. Uh, so we might turn to your book, and so I guess the first question I should ask is, what do you think of as the primary argument for contesting Chineseness?
2: Right, um, the primary argument of uh, the book is that Singaporean Chinese and mainland Chinese migrants, so we're talking about uh, newly arrived migrants from mainland China, um, that they have different imaginaries of Chinese identity. And to draw this out, uh, what I do in the book is really two things. First, uh, I detail how participants, right? And I interview Singaporean Chinese as well as mainland Chinese migrants. Uh, I detail how they imagine Chineseness alongside nationality, class and gender. And these factors combine in myriad ways to produce hierarchies of Chineseness. The second thing the book does is to consider participants' interaction with state discourses on migration and Chinese capitalism to show how the state and China's rise shape their Chinese subjectivity. So essentially, my analysis aims to contribute to unpacking the complexities of mass migration, superdiversity, and assumed homogeneity of the Chinese category.
1: Yeah, so, um, so moving on to your introduction, what, what I really liked from it is this kind of opening anecdote, because as someone also of Chinese descent, um, but from Malaysia rather than Singapore, this is kind of an all too familiar scenario for me, uh, though I also have the baggage of not speaking Mandarin fluently, which makes these interactions kind of tricky. Um, I know the monograph focuses specifically on Singapore, but as someone who's lived and worked between Australia and Singapore, what differences have you kind of found in terms of your own experience-ness, uh, your experiences of ness in the two countries?
2: Mm, really interesting. Um, well, I wanted like to ask you about yours too, but uh, Well, okay, I'll talk about mine first, maybe. Uh, well, to put it simply, I think in Singapore, uh, I, I used to be part of the dominant ethnic group, uh, you know, the, the Singaporean Chinese group, and I enjoyed significant privileges over uh, minorities. Uh, although I must say that, uh, although I've been labored Singaporean Chinese, my heritage is actually quite fuzzy, So that's also talking about how really a lot of people's identities are very fluid, but uh, we have been forced to go under these four categories in Singapore, which is Chinese, Malay, Indian, and others. Um, In Australia, I've faced racism due to my appearance, uh, my appearances uh, of appearing, you know, like a Chinese, Um, and I could stop there, but I'm not likely (laughs) to, because I'm always. <laughs> about gender, right? Social inequalities and hierarchies of power. So, I will add that, and this is not to diminish uh, minorities' um, experiences in Singapore, okay, but to give you a better idea of the power hierarchies in Singapore, I'll add that in Singapore, although I'm part of the dominant Singaporean Chinese ethnic group, The patriarchal structures in in Singapore means that I'm frequently placed in positions subordinate to Singaporean Chinese men. Uh, Of course, in Australia, you know, there are experiences, uh, and I do experience, the intersection of racism and sexism. uh, But I think for sexism, to a lesser extent. So uh, sometimes I think about which I can tolerate better, uh, you know, sexism in Singapore or racism in Australia. So I don't yet have the conclusion (laughs) (laughs)
1: No, it's a a really good point. And and uh, I don't want to take too much time discussing my own experiences. But it's an interesting thing that I often think about with fellow migrants, um, especially in Australia as well, in the sense that there is that strange positionality that you have as a double migrant, or in my case, as a double migrant, in the sense that you know, in Malaysia, uh, Chinese are seen as the minority group as well. And sort of in Australia, it's the same thing. So I've, I've seen sort of similar things. But it's a very different type of intersectionality as well. But but and as you mentioned, gender, uh, being male, that sort of gives me some privileges, uh, but in the kind of Australian versus Malaysian context, that becomes tricky as well. But let's not talk about me, let's uh, talk about your book instead. Um, have you found that your personal experiences as both as kind of an insider and outsider, particularly as someone who grew up in Singapore, but then spent time studying overseas. Has that assisted in the research process? It's something I asked because I was struck by your discussion of methodology, which not only demonstrated this really thoughtful positionality, and, and you know you mentioned that in your uh, response to the previous question as well, but it's also this kind of reflection of the migrant experience. I'll, I'll, I'll buy to a Western country rather than to Singapore. mm
2: mm-hmm. really good question, yeah. Um, now, it was very interesting to go back to Singapore uh, and do this research. Uh, I haven't been overseas for very long then, um, you know, I was only living overseas in Australia for four years before I went back to do um, my field work. And um, despite that, I think you know, being a candidate of uh, overseas university kind of helped uh, because I was kind of part stranger to, to both the Singaporeans, uh Singaporean Chinese and also to the mainland Chinese migrants. Um, so I think simultaneously, I was occupying an insider and outsider position during my few work. Uh, as an insider, uh, you know, with Singaporean Chinese, I could, uh, do strategies of code switching so I can, uh, speak a quite good Singlish or, or maybe not now anymore because I've been in Australia for a lot longer, but, um, uh, I could do English, Singlish, I can do good Mandarin, I can do bad Mandarin and even some Chinese vernaculars. Um, so that is to really minimize the kind of, uh, distance between, um, Singaporean Chinese and myself, um. But at the same time, right, I found it useful to position myself as an ill-informed overseas returnee, uh, you know, Singaporean. Like, oh, you know, I've been away for four years. I don't know what's been happening with Chinese immigration. Can you tell, you, tell me more about, like, these mainland Chinese migrants? So that's what I did. Uh, and, and I think a lot of uh, my Singaporean Chinese participants felt like they were in a position of power to educate me. And so I got a lot of information out of that. Now, my position as an insider Singaporean uh, while interacting with Chinese migrants was really interesting because uh, definitely it came with benefits um, because so many of them have so little interaction with Singaporeans. Uh, and I talked about this in the uh, chapter on Geylang as the new Chinatown uh, I, when I met up with a group of mainland Chinese construction workers. Um, and it was a whole table full of them. I think it was like a good seven, eight of them. And they actually said uh, they have never had the opportunity to interact with a Singaporean. And they were actually treating me like a star. They were like, you know, interrupting each other to ask me questions about Singapore. So in that way, I was very welcome into their com- company. So that really helped. Uh, and then at the same time, uh, because I identify as a graduate student, uh, you know, in an Australian university, uh, I could also see him as an outsider, which uh, mitigated the wariness they may normally have with other Singaporeans. They're like, ah, she's not the same kind of Singaporeans that have been discriminating against us. You know, she studies overseas. So that helped as well. Yes.
1: Yeah. And and sort of continuing with methodology, admittedly, there's a bit of a big question that goes slightly beyond the book, but as someone who practiced digital ethnography as part of uh, your research, what do you think of the rise of, you know, new technologically enabled ways of doing research in recent years?
2: It is a very big question. <laughs> um, I think generally technology is not going to stop. Uh, and I think uh, we should embrace it, including um, technologically enabled ways of doing research. Having said that, uh, really the kind of, you know, Techno- technological and able ways of doing research for me that I've done is digital ethnography. So I'll comment mainly on that, I think. um, I think today, people's lives are really d- deeply entangled with and communicated via digital technologies. So digital ethnography helps to present a more rounded approach to people's lives. Um, However, the way I've approached it in uh, the book is that although digital media is a part of uh, people's lives. It is also not the only part. Um, there are other aspects of their lives uh, that, you know, personally, I wanted to take into consideration. So digital ethnography was actually used to complement my um, ethnography as well in that, uh, in that interviews. Um, and also, I wanted to um, just note that there are many ways to do digital ethnography. And depending on the topic uh, of research, uh, digital ethnography on its own can be just as fruitful. It's just not the way I've approached it, Uh, and also regarding my topic. Uh, For the book, uh, just to uh, expand a little bit, uh, I use digital ethnography in two ways. I observe social media websites uh, that are frequented by Singaporeans and mainland Chinese migrants in Singapore. And also, I use the mobile media um, application WeChat to observe, access, and talk to many Chinese migrants.
1: Yeah, and and sort of uh, moving on to your first chapter, as you kind of set out, uh, which gets to the heart of the question about Chinese identity in its title, Who's Chinese? There's been been all these long-standing debates over who is and gets to be Chinese, not just within the broader diaspora, but in China itself. So how have responses to the question of who is Chinese changed over time, do
2: you think? Okay, now the answer is going to be a bit long, I think, because (laughs) it changed over time, right? So I'm going to tell you how it changed over time. Just bear with me. I'll try not to make it so dry, um, I think in the chapter, uh, I talk about imaginaries of who is Chinese, right, has really evolved with politics. It's very practical, right, uh, contingent on the practical needs of capitalism and geopolitics. And this is in China as well as in Singapore. And so in the book, I discuss how China evolved from claiming all overseas Chinese as Chinese nationals to uh, kind of being um, forced or compelled to acknowledge that many ethnic Chinese, uh, especially in the context of Southeast Asia, had acclimatized to their host countries and took on the nationalities of their newly independent nations, right? In other words, they had to kind of let go of these overseas Chinese. Now, for Singapore, I show that Singapore, uh, Singapore's Chinese identity, it's really interwoven with China, and it's a responsive identity that feeds off China's evolution. right? So whether it's uh, not wanting to associate with China uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, because Singapore didn't want to be seen as communist, uh, to the process of re to profit from China's opening up in uh, the 1980s. So crucial to the book's key concern is how China, with its economic rise, has in recent times increasingly appealed to the ethnic Chinese overseas, regardless of their nationalities, to contribute to the Chinese dream. So this is really a key concern. Um, and And as in detail in the book, since Singapore's Chinese identity is you know, pragmatically constructed, uh, it has remained very superficial and fragile, and it has come under scrutiny with the arrival of new Chinese migrants, compelling Singaporean Chinese to question the state's version of Chinese identity and Chinese homogeneity. So in other words, to answer the question, finally, <laughs> summary is to say, the question of whose Chinese has, I think, grown in uh, with a lot of importance and relevance with the arrival of recent mainland Chinese migrants in Singapore.
1: Yeah, which is really interesting. And to kind of, uh, you know, go further deeper into the question, I guess the other question I had was the place of the Malaysian Chinese in all of this as well, in the sense that, uh, as you were saying, Chinese identity has changed in response to kind of waves of migration. Um, and one of the things that we do know about sort of Singapore is the kind of presence of Malaysian Chinese, and, and they're quite a large contingent. I know the book focuses primarily on uh, Singapore Chinese and mainland Chinese migrants, but I couldn't help but wonder, how do the Ma- Malaysian Chinese fit in the middle of all of this?
2: I kind of expected this question because Bernard has a Malaysian Chinese, <laughs> so now it's a really interesting question, and I wish I could find out because I, uh, like you said, the book doesn't include uh, the Malaysian Chinese. Now I haven't done any research on this, but generally, right from my uh, Singaporean sense, right is that the Singaporean Chinese generally seem to prefer the Malaysian Chinese, who uh, share a lot more similarities uh, with us, including food. Right? So even here in Australia, I've often found that I can connect easily with a Malaysians just through discussing Chak with Yao, for example. <laughs> <laughs> no. So um, now it's a little off the trajectory, but I think it's import- interesting to note that um, in the June 2020, uh, 2022 Peel Research Survey, uh, it found that in most countries, majorities have a favourable view of the U.S., but more people in Malaysia and Singapore, so with outliers, actually hold favourable views of China than the US. So in both countries, uh, those who identify as ethnically Chinese are more likely than those who identify with another ethnicity to hold favourable views of China. So thinking about Malaysia and Singapore, I think it's so interesting. It makes you think that you know China's soft power and diasporic policies. I think they are working actually really well in Singapore and Malaysia. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's so that's actually really interesting. And sort so just like as a preface, I think you can bond with anyone over Kway Tao. It's just a universal food, right? Um, but that's just a strange aside. Um, and, and kind of uh, continuing on with this kind of idea of identity, uh, you make this observation in chapter two that the social imaginaries of Singaporean and mainland Chinese are kind of constructed along class lines, with the former being conceptualized as middle class and urbane, while the latter are framed as kind of working class and unrefined. How much of this is driven by aspiration or anxiety on the part of Singaporean Chinese about their own class position now?
2: Mm, great question. Now in the book, I focused on how Singaporean Chinese imagine the Chinese, especially female migrants, as marked by bad dressing, poor hygiene and sexual immorality. For the Singaporean Chinese, these markers are imagined to be mainland Chinese migrants' embodiment of the third world status of their country and which construct Chinese migrants as of the lower classes. Of course, this is contrary to the fact, right? I mean, China is nowhere near Third World, but the imaginary of China as Third World has stuck uh, in the Singaporean Chinese imaginary because so many of our ancestors, like our grandparents, uh, actually fled from a very poor uh, China that had famine uh, then, right? Um, now, Chinese migrants perceived Lower class status is linked to Singaporean Chinese denial of their cultural citizenship, which is intimately linked to anxieties about immigration. Uh, that the middle class Singaporean right will be engulfed by the incoming mainland Chinese migrants and they're taking out of Singaporean uh, permanent residence and citizenship. So, uh, yes, the anxiety is about class. Um, but that is also very closely linked to uh, anxieties about immigration, basically.
1: Yeah, and, and sort of like going to the point that you were saying about the kind of uh, perceptions of Chinese migrants, mainland Chinese migrants, there's this kind of sensory perception that you talk about as well, where they're kind of seen by Singaporean Chinese as smelly, dirty, unfashionable, uh, kind of uh, uh, is, is that this kind of mirror to the discourse that British colonizers had towards Asian communities during the colonial period, or is this something that's kind of different?
2: Mm, interesting. I, I wouldn't say it's a continuation of colonial attitudes because I think it's quite different how uh, white colonialists enact racism or non-white people, right, people of colour. Rather, I would argue that it's an evolution of racism from biological racism to cultural racism, um, despite the lack of difference in skin colour and phenotype. Right, these markers of difference, uh, like smell or you know, being dirty or unfashionable, have circulated and take on their own shape, right, in the Singaporean context. And I think fashion, right, which is what I uh, discussed, discuss, I think smell and, and dirt it's it's uh, has circulated as racist uh, ideas uh, quite universally. But I think um my take on fashion uh in, in the book is quite interesting, at least to me, uh, is that Every fashion is so subjective, right? Um, how does something so subjective become a mark of otherness, right? according to the Singaporean Chinese participants? So while this chapter does echo uh, David Gio Goldberg's observation that racism travels not just geographically, but from one marginal group to another, it's also uh, I'm keen to explore other contextual ways of producing difference.
1: Yeah. And and sort of like that question of difference is really interesting because I found the discussion of gender in chapters two and three particularly illuminating, especially this kind of misogynistic characterization of uh, Chinese migrant women as having low morals because they're all seen as uh, adulterers or sex workers and the emasculation as well of low wage Chinese migrant men. What accounts for this gender discourse? Why do you think sexual politics features so heavily in this othering of Chinese migrants in Singapore?
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Mm. As I alluded to earlier, sexism is highly prevalent in Singaporean society and the state has a huge role to play in this. Um, To take our immigration system, uh, for example, right? only women from a select few countries, mainly Indonesia, the Philippines and Myanmar, can be domestic workers in Singapore. And only men, mainly from South Asia and China, can be construction workers in Singapore, right? So there are scholars like, you know, Brenda Yeo, Shalina Huang, Kelly Nui, uh, who have written extensively about this, that the Singaporean state has a very stagnant, gendered idea about what women should do or what men should do, right? And gendered discourses, of course, intersect with class discourses in Singapore as well, right? Whether it's domestic work or construction work, these are jobs that no Singaporean will do, whether it's due to the low wages or the low status. So it's not uh I guess it's not a surprise then that Singaporeans enact gendered and class discrimination against mainland Chinese migrants.
1: Yeah. And as a small aside on, on your point about the state's involvement is this in all of this is that it's very interesting to me still that the Ministry of Manpower is still called the Ministry of Manpower. It's very gendered. Um, but continuing on the topic of gender, you further explore how working class Chinese male migrants have challenged their mas- uh, emasculation in the eyes of Singaporean Chinese through this construction of alternative masculinities. Could you uh, spend some time describing some of these alternative masculinities and how they've developed?
2: Mm. The book uh, does discuss a few ways uh, low-wage mainland Chinese male migrants redefine their masculinity. Uh, one way uh, I'll touch on was in terms of using suzi, so uh, which is loosely is a Chinese term suzi, which is loosely defined as quality of personhood. Uh, and in the book, I uh you know Tong, who is a low-wage mainland Chinese migrant worker in Singapore, and it was really interesting because um. You know, in many ways, uh, they are emasculated uh, by Singaporean uh, Chinese. Uh, but in his narrative, he actually contrasts himself with Singaporean Chinese men a lot. So he told me, like, uh, uh, you know, I send all the money I earn to my wife. I would always ask my wife for her preferences before ordering food at a restaurant. I never go Dutch with women, right? Unlike Singaporean Chinese men, okay, according to him, um. And he said, being good to women is a sign of high suzi, right? So being good to women is a sign of high quality, right? And accordingly, he actually uh, told me that he rated not just himself, but mainland Chinese men's suzi as 10 upon 10, while Singaporean Chinese men are only at 80%. Okay. so interesting right and because um, and you know my na- analysis is really that uh, because stone cannot meet mainstream standards right? hegemonic standards of a successful man in the form of possessing wealth right he de-emphasized uh, Singaporean Chinese men's ability to spend right uh, but emphasized the manner in which they spent right which according to him was individualistic and inconsiderate of women. So in that way, he represented not only himself but all Chinese men as of higher suzi, therefore uh, repositioning mainland Chinese men's masculinity as superior to Singaporean Chinese men.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And sort of uh, moving on to kind of uh, language. So on speaking, or perhaps more accurately, not speaking Chinese, which is a great book by Yan'ang, by the way, uh, language seems to be one of the most complex sites of contestation for Chinese identity. In the case of Singapore, this is largely centered around English being the lingua franca and language of power and Mandarin being mandated by the state as the mother tongue for uh, those that are identified or identify as Singaporean Chinese at the expense of traditional vernaculars like Cantonese, Hokkien, Hakka, Teochew, uh, among others. Could you elaborate on how language acts as a battleground for identity in Singapore?
2: Yes, of course. Yeah, I don't know if you ever know a Singaporean Chinese and whether they can speak uh, Mandarin really well. I'll tell you to give you some context. Uh, Singaporean Chinese, uh, we do have to take Mandarin classes throughout our mandatory education. But our first language, uh, you know, whether it's used in examinations, work, or the bureaucracy or the day-to-day uh, you know, basis is English. So Mandarin is conventionally perceived as of very little economic value in Singapore, right? And uh, being the ever pragmatic Singaporean, uh, until the more recent rise of China's economy, uh, most Singaporean Chinese don't value uh, the Mandarin language very much. And uh, many of them, their Mandarin language ability can be quite mediocre, Parade, uh, not very far from uh, what you claim you can speak, uh, Bernard. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, look, I think um, Singaporeans can speak better Mandarin than I can, but that's beside the point. Um, <clears throat> so in your final chapter, you provide this really fascinating exploration of Geylang, which is the kind of red light district of Singapore, and how it has come to be reimagined as a new Chinatown in contrast with the kind of curated vision of Chinatown that that's found in uh, the city center, which more replicates the kind of Chinatown that we're more familiar with in lots of cities around the world. Why do you think Geylang has become this space and place for the gathering of new Chinese migrants? And how How is the construction of others related to the construction of places?
2: If you don't mind I might just uh, finish answering the previous question. I realize I haven't uh, finished answering it. Um,
1: oh yeah, please go
2: ahead. Yeah, on language as a better ground. So yes, I stopped at how uh, Singaporean Chinese Mandarin language ability is quite mediocre. And um, really language has become a battlefield for Singaporean Chinese and mainland Chinese migrants uh, because, well, firstly, mainland Chinese migrants are frequently quite appalled by Singaporean Chinese uh, weak Mandarin proficiency and see uh, Singaporean Chinese as not Chinese enough, right? How can you claim you're Chinese if you can't speak Mandarin properly? is very often thrown at the Singaporean Chinese. Uh, Singaporean Chinese, however, will defend their weak Mandarin proficiency by suggesting that uh, speaking the language well does not equate to being Chinese. So they will claim that other languages such as English, uh, English-Chinese vernaculars, and even a Singaporean version of Mandarin are all presented better than mainland Chinese migrants' mandarin. Now, I'll move on to the Geylang uh, question, right? So, uh, you know, why have the new Chinese migrants gathered in Geylang? Uh, to give you some context, uh, you know, this is maybe a less known fact about Singapore. Um, sex work is actually uh, legal in Singapore, and Geylang is Singapore's official red light district. Uh, so, uh where sex workers are um, mainly concentrated and in 2014 when i did my field work the area housed many low-wage migrants both south asians and mainland chinese migrants now the area is predominantly made out of old shop houses uh, so if you go there it's quite interesting the shop houses there are very old um but these shop houses would uh would actually be you know um split up their space right uh and they will be packed with multiple beds to house low-wage workers, right? Uh, often under quite bad conditions. And many Chinese mainland Chinese migrants are attracted by the cheap rent, uh, so they actually um, started going there, living there, and subsequently when businesses grew to accommodate their needs, uh, more mainland Chinese migrants became even more attracted to the area. Now uh, the, on the question on how the construction of others is closely related to constructions of places. Uh, the chapter on Geylang as the new Chinatown showed that the seemingly innocuous construction of Geelang as a new Chinatown views a discourse of visualisation. So uh, in the book, I talk about how Singaporean Chinese um, and the media's construction of Geylang as the new Chinatown is deeply linked to imaginaries of mainland Chinese migrants as inassimilable. So, Geelang, although it has been for decades, uh, really for a very long time, the state's red light like, district with attached vices, right, whether it's gambling or, or, or things like that, it is now constructed as even more immoral and lawless due to the large presence of Chinese migrants. So the Singaporean Chinese construction of Geylang as the new Chinatown is really intimately linked to the construction of Chinese migrants as others. The implication is that the immorality and lawlessness in Geylang fits the immorality and lawlessness of mainland Chinese migrants. So in essence, this chapter shows that the construction of others is closely related to the construction of places.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I guess the other striking part that I found with the chapter involves this discussion of the original Chinatown as well, which has become this kind of, um, as I was saying earlier, commodified space. It's kind of a tourist trap that follows the similar hallmarks of Chinatowns all over the world. So, you know, pagodas, dragon gates, lion statues, lots of red everywhere. Uh, Given Singapore has a majority ethnic Chinese population, why does it have a Chinatown?
2: Mm, Really good question, uh, Bernard. And you're right, right? It's very touristy. It's like a... Uh, little uh, ethnic wonderland, um, the red lanterns, the pagoda-like bar stops actually has very little to do with Singaporean Chinese lives. I've actually never seen a lantern in my life, you know, like those red lanterns. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not even Chinese
1: New Year?
2: Uh, yeah, unless, unless I go to Chinatown, yeah, basically, and during Chinese New Year, right? Um, Now, really interesting, Singapore's Chinatown is a colonial legacy, right? Because we were colonized. um, It was the initial uh, congregating sport, newly arrived Chinese in the 19th century. And really, uh, the place is conjured by the colonial imaginary. Uh, And since 1891, soon after uh, Singapore was established as a British port, uh, the space of Singapore was divided into segregated quarters organized by race. Race is also, uh, of course, a colonial legacy. So this included a Chinese quarter near the Singapore River, which subsequently became Chinatown. Now, the British perceived the Chinese as filthy, immoral, and corrupt, and the presence of opium houses, gambling houses, and brothels in Chinatown reinforced these imaginaries. So racialized discourses regarding the Chinese uh, were allowed to reproduce but it didn't end with Singapore's independence because pragmatically, you know, knowing Singapore, the new Singaporean state actually appropriated these uh, British colonial structures and transformed them to suit its purposes, right? Including for tourism. So Chinatown, for example, right? Now that you look at it, it's like really nice, nicely conserved, but it was always not always uh, the case. Uh, in fact, uh, there were plans to modernise it and, and kind of, uh, you know, do away with it, um, but the call for conservation in the nineteen eighties coincided with a decline in tourism, and the mounting fear that a modernizing Singapore was losing its Asian values, right, with inverted commerce to Westernization. Uh, so again, pragmatic choices. So that's why the Singapore's Chinatown remains.
1: And as you know, we've learned so far in this interview. Uh... Singapore is a very pragmatic place. Uh, but to kind of wrap up our discussion of your book today, I wanted to ask what you thought might be the future of Chinese as an identity in Singapore, and maybe even if it's too if it's not too difficult to ask globally as well, uh, especially when we consider the continued ascendancy of China as a superpower, both you know, economically, politically, militarily, in all of the various senses. Mm.
2: Yes, of course. Um I think uh I think the Singaporean state may finally have decided that in order not to be held hostage to Singapore, uh, to China, it must define its own Chinese identity, right? Which is why uh, in 2017, it opened the Singapore Chinese Cultural Centre that cost uh, a US $110 million. So it's a lot of money. It's an 11-storey, sparkling building. Um, and significantly, right, uh, and fascinatingly, the Singaporean Chinese Cultural Centre came after the China Cultural Centre, which was opened in 2015 during China's, uh, you know, President Xi Jinping's state visit to Singapore. So I think, the and they're very close to each other, yeah? They're both actually very uh, proximate to each other. I think this close proximity between these two Chinese Cultural Centres in Singapore may not be a coincidence. I think the question of distancing Chineseness from China has always been a topic of interest among scholars studying Chinese diasporas. Um, and we're still talking about it. It's been a long time. We're still talking about it. I don't have an answer uh, to the future of Chineseness as an identity in Singapore. But I think the Singapore's uh, Chinese identity, because of its co-constitutive connections with China's identity, it's going to be very, very hard for Singapore to create its own. Uh, you know, as I wrote in a the book, uh, there was an esteemed uh, scholar of Chinese diaspora uh, that, was, uh, with, uh, that was with was with me, we, had, we were having a talk, and when she heard about this Singapore Chinese Culture Centre, she said, but what will it teach? Uh, you know, which is a really good point, it's, it's, a, it's a really good rhetoric, um, and with China's rise, right, and with China uh, reaching out, to the ethnic Chinese overseas with its soft power, with its diasporic uh, policies, it's gonna be even harder. And of course, I don't have an answer to, uh, you know, thinking about Chineseness globally. I think this, uh, but I think what Singapore as a case study is is interesting is because it's uh really, it's a good uh you know microcosm I think to think about the bigger picture. Uh, there are. Chinese migrants, uh, new Chinese migrants, new flows of Chinese migrants to uh, many parts of the world with settled ethnic Chinese settlers. So uh what are their interactions like? Are there tensions? Are there, you know, are there uh warm welcomes? Um it's a very understudied area I, I think and um worth really paying attention to.
1: I think that was actually a fantastic response. Um, and I do have plenty of uh, <clears throat> more questions and discussion points, but I'm very conscious that I've taken up quite a bit of your time. So to try and help us wrap things up, I thought I'd ask about what you're working on now or planning to work on next?
2: Uh, yes, of course. Um, I'm also very conscious that I'm taking up your time, Bernard. Um, so I will give it short, uh, which is um, I'm working on uh, two projects right now. One is on the attitudes towards the West. Among Chinese returned graduates of Western universities. So uh, they are based in China, they've returned to China. What are they thinking about the West? Uh, and another project is on how aspirations among the ethnic Chinese community in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, are shaped by class, gender, and nationality. Yes
1: both excellent projects. Uh, the the former one about sort of uh, Western perceptions is particularly interesting given Xi Jinping himself spent a little bit of time in the US before going back to China. Um, and sort of like there are various uh, senior members of the Chinese Communist Party whose children are still spending time in the West before they return to China. So it sounds like a Great project. And the other one sounds amazing as well. Um, I would love to stay and chat all day about our shared research interests, but I think it's time to bring this episode to a close. Uh, Thanks so much, Sylvia, for coming along to New Books in History to talk about your book, Contesting Chineseness, Nationality, Class, Gender, and New Chinese Migrants, which was published in 2022 by Amsterdam University Press. Right.
2: Thanks a lot, Bernard. Thanks for having me.